Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. Please have your Bibles open to Hebrews so you can follow along there and in other places we'll turn this morning in the scriptures. Again, welcome to our service at Christ the King. I'm delighted you've joined us. It was a full three months ago now that we were last in Hebrews. But my hope is that even that amount of time hasn't been enough for us to forget what we then had regularly called the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. That we have a great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. In a way, all of Hebrews connects to that reality. We find ourselves at every point asking perhaps one of two basic questions. Question one, what does that mean? Or question two, what does that mean for our lives? Either way, Hebrews is all about who Jesus is now as our high priest. What are we to understand about the fact that Jesus is high priest? And then having understood those things, what implications does that have for our lives? Chapter 4, verse 14 of Hebrews is the verse that introduced the large central section of the written sermon of Hebrews. We still find ourselves in that section this morning in chapter 9. The central section of Hebrews runs from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 10, verse 25. And how did it start back in chapter 4, verse 14? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The pastor writing Hebrews has a very pastoral goal. It is, in fact, the goal of any pastor worth his or her salt. The pastor writing Hebrews wants his people to hold fast. He wants them to endure. Early on in this sermon series, we quoted often Hebrews 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, the pastor writes, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Central to Hebrews is the teaching that our very lives of faith, our lives of persevering faithfulness, of doing the will of God, our very lives of faith are made possible by the fact that we have a great high priest. It will be the especial burden of the final three chapters of Hebrews to bring home the possibility and necessity of such enduring faith in light of the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, as we re-enter the large central section of Hebrews, we remain primarily focused on the first question that I posed a moment ago. What does it mean to say Jesus is our high priest? How has Jesus become our great high priest? What made that possible? How does that fit within the plan of God for his people all through history? 
What does Jesus being our high priest entail, and what are the theological implications of that fact? We've had a lot to say about such questions already. But at the point where we now re-enter the pastor's argument in chapter 9, you may recall that what has recently been in focus is the connection of Jesus as high priest with the arrival of the new covenant. Since chapter 8, the pastor has been focused on the fact that as our high priest, Jesus has done what no priest of the old covenant could. He has cleansed his people from their sins. And as we saw when we considered Hebrews 8, that was the foundation of all that the prophet Jeremiah said would come in the new covenant. In Hebrews 8, if you look back there, you see again that the pastor quoted at length from Jeremiah chapter 31. Using Jeremiah, the pastor explained that the new covenant would be new because it would bring about the transformed hearts of his people. This is Hebrews 8 verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The inner transformation of the people of God is what would be new about the new covenant. God would no longer write his law on tablets of stone outside the heart. Instead, he would write his laws on our very hearts. He would change us from the inside out so that we would love his will and do it. And at the bottom of it all, we saw that the foundational thing, the thing necessary to bring about the new covenant, was something that the old covenant could never accomplish. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, the conclusion of the quote from Jeremiah, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And so it had been the burden of the first part of chapter 9 to make clear that there was no old covenant sacrifice that could accomplish that. Not even the Day of Atonement if you recall what we looked at in chapter 9. Which is why there we were in verse 9 of Hebrews 9, concluding with the pastor, according to this old covenant arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, as was promised in the new covenant but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And the whole glorious point of Hebrews is that time has come. Long ago, God spoke by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is what Christ as high priest means, verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, verse 13 for if the blood of goats and bulls 
and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 14 is the pastor's most definitive statement thus far of the benefits brought by Christ our high priest. In cleansing the hearts or the conscience of God's people from sin or dead works, works that lead to death, the sacrifice our high priest made of himself empowers his people to serve the living God, to walk in obedient, faithful fellowship with him. And so bringing together the point of Jeremiah 31, quoted in Hebrews 8, and then the description of what our high priest has accomplished there in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 9, can you see how then we're ready for verse 15a and the start of our text this morning. I think we could almost write the first few words of verse 15 ourselves, couldn't we? Therefore, he, Jesus our high priest, is the mediator of a new covenant. Of course he is. If Jesus has done what the pastor says in verse 14, that means he has brought about the new covenant reality that was always the hope of God's people. That God will remember their sins no more. That he will purify their consciences from dead works. That he will write his laws on their hearts. And that as a result, they will serve the living God in holiness and righteousness all their days, to borrow the language of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Christ, our high priest, is the mediator of a new covenant by virtue of his self-offering on the cross. That's the point of verse 15a. And then, given again all that we've studied so far in Hebrews, we shouldn't be surprised by the next part of verse 15 either. Why would Christ do this? What is the final purpose of the new covenant? We saw that back in chapter 8, verse 10, where the Lord said through Jeremiah concerning the result of this new covenant, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now verse 15b of our passage says, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Christ did not offer himself to bring about something temporary. The promise is of an eternal inheritance. Verse 12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, thus securing an eternal redemption. Way back in chapter 5, verse 9, the pastor said of this high priest that being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And at the end of the book, in chapter 13, verse 20, the pastor will say the blood of Jesus is that of an eternal covenant. Because the covenant Jesus' blood brings about is eternal, 
the redemption that covenant secures is eternal, making Jesus the source of a salvation that is eternal. And I know that three months have gone by, but I hope also that you haven't forgotten this point either, brothers and sisters. What is that salvation? What is this eternal inheritance that has been promised? Promised to Abraham and promised to all who, like Abraham, have pursued the life of faith. What is the hope set before us? What is the great salvation in view in Hebrews? Well, you will remember this if you've been with us. It is life with God in a place. And that life will be eternal. That's what Abraham and all the faithful have always been living for. And that's what we're supposed to be living for too. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the pastor wrote back in chapter 4, verse 11, to enter the eternal Sabbath rest of God. How do we strive to enter it? Well, by enduring, by continuing in faithful obedience, unlike the wilderness generation we considered at length back in Hebrews 3 and 4. Remember that? Take care, the pastor wrote in chapter 3, verse 12 lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The same living God, Christ our High Priest, makes it possible for us to serve, according to chapter 9, verse 14. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised that's why Jesus died, according to verse 15b of our passage this morning. To bring about the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So actually, in a way, verses 15a and 15b provide us with a sort of summary of Hebrews thus far, don't they? If you've been with us as we've been studying through this uh, written sermon, then most everything of what I just said should at least seem more or less familiar. Only then, if you're like me, at this point, what you might expect is that the pastor would turn to a further explanation of the new covenant promises. Or perhaps the pastor will say more now concerning the, the implications that all of this has for our lives as we live by faith within the reality of the new covenant brought about by our great high priest. And you wouldn't be wrong to expect such things. The pastor will say more about all of that. But not yet. What comes next in verse 15c, the third part of verse 15, moves us in a different direction. In fact, it sets the agenda for the rest of our passage this morning. It turns out the pastor at this moment has more to say about the old covenant with respect to Jesus, 
before he turns finally and climactically again to the new covenant later in chapter 10. And specifically what the pastor focuses on in the rest of verses 15 through 22, our passage today from Hebrews 9, concerns how the death of Christ, our high priest, relates not directly to the new covenant, but to the old covenant. Just as the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 rested on the foundation of the forgiveness of the sins of God's people, so also does the eternal purpose of Christ as mediator of the new covenant rest on what his death has accomplished with respect to the old covenant. To see this, look now at how verse 15 continues. We explained verse 15a, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. We connected that to verse 15b, having to do with the purpose of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. But now look in your Bibles there at verse 15c. The pastor here provides the ground or the reason why all this works. It's all since or because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's what we need to work hard now to try to understand in the time we have remaining. Verse 15c, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, as I read it, verses 16 to 22 of the passage directly support that part of verse 15. In other words, I think verses 16 to 22 are here to explain why this death was necessary. There's quite a tight argument going on in these verses, and the interpretation of them, even the translation of them, as we'll see, is surprisingly complicated. So my goal is not to trace every debate and nuance of what's involved in this, in this text, though I'll be glad to follow up with you on points if you're interested. My goal is now to make the overall point sing for us this morning. And that means I want us to understand something about verse 15c, that a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What does that mean? And how does that work? The pastor seems to think that only if we grasp the significance of that third part of verse 15 can we properly embrace the wonderful truths of the first two parts that we've already reviewed this morning. So let's begin then in, on this section with two clarifying comments regarding verse 15c. Comment number one, who are the ones being redeemed? The pastor writes, a death has occurred that redeems them. Who is that? Who are they? Well, according to the part of verse 15 right before it, they are those who are called, right? 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them. In Hebrews, this language of calling would seem directly to pertain to the heavenly calling that the pastor mentioned once already back in chapter 3, verse 1, where he referred to his hearers as holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. Meaning then that those who are called are all those, including the recipients of Hebrews, and including you and me, who have received the promise of salvation given to Abraham originally, the promise of life with God in the heavenly homeland. Having received that calling, they, like Abraham, have responded in faith. In other words, those who are called are the descendants of Abraham by faith, the sons and daughters of Abraham, to use Paul's phrase from Galatians 3. It's those who by faith stand in the line of Abraham and therefore will receive the promised inheritance. That would include the remnant throughout the Old Testament era and, of course, every believer in the New Testament up to today, including you and me. A death has occurred that redeems them. Comment number two much shorter, I think there can be no debate concerning whose death it is we're talking about here. It has to be Jesus' offering, his self-offering as a sacrifice on the cross. That's what was obviously in view in verse 14, to which verse 15 is directly connected. It's Jesus' death that has redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So that with those two comments out of the way, I think the key question for our passage is to understand what that redemption entails. In other words, dear friends, what are we redeemed from exactly? What's the problem created by transgressions committed under the first covenant? Because whatever that is, that's what Christ's death has dealt with, you see? The pastor seems keen to explore in what way the death of Christ redeemed those who are called. To redeem suggests that we've been somehow delivered or rescued or reclaimed. But in what sense is that true exactly? Now, this may not seem like the most significant question to you this morning. Or maybe the question just seems obvious. But if we take the pastor seriously, it must be of significance. It seems that for the blood of Christ to inaugurate the new covenant, that same blood must bring about the end of the old covenant. Which, it turns out, isn't a simple thing. Because what do transgressions, deliberate, serious acts of disobedience, what do transgressions committed under the first covenant require? In other words, what's the consequence of breaking the covenant? Where would you go to find that out? Well, the pastor 
in our text in verses 18 to 22, goes to the moment when the Sinai covenant was inaugurated in Exodus chapter 24. So I invite you, if you would, to turn back there briefly to Exodus 24. And we'll consider that chapter as we work our way backwards in the Hebrews text to verse 15c. In verses 18 to 22 of Hebrews chapter 9, the pastor is referring primarily to an event, and it's the event that was recorded in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8. He does this to support why Jesus had to die to redeem his people. The pastor says in, verse, in Hebrews 9, verse 18, that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The key question is, what's the significance of that fact? What blood is he talking about? Well, Exodus 24 is where you find out about it. If you're back there in Exodus 24 and you flip a little bit ahead of it, you'll see that in the chapters preceding, the Ten Commandments had been delivered. The book of the covenant had been given to Moses in Exodus chapters 20 to 23. And then in chapter 24, Moses is supposed to go up to the Lord with Aaron and 70 of the elders. But before they do, the covenant has to be ratified. And so listen to verses 3 to 8. I'm in Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now that is everything the Lord had said to him in the last four chapters. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, the twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. This is now verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood, that is, the blood from the animals they'd just sacrificed, and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took, watch this, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, he'd already told them all the rules, according to verse 3, right? Why repeat it? Well, it's because this is the formal part, you see. It has to be read again. It's been written down and he'll read it again. He does. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Only they'd said that before, too, just a few verses earlier. They have to formally say it again. This is the people of Israel confirming their part of the covenant. And then it's in response to that, that we get verse 8, which is what the pastor quotes in Hebrews 9, verse 20. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Here's the key. Why did Moses do that? 
What's the significance of taking the blood and throwing it on the people and declaring this is the blood of the covenant after the people committed themselves officially saying as one again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What's the meaning of that blood? Well, it turns out that's not such an easy question to answer confidently because Exodus doesn't explain it. In fact, I read three or four different understandings of what that blood signifies this week. But in the end, I go with what many scholars also argue, that in light of similar examples of covenants in the ancient Near East, including some other covenants within the scriptures themselves, the blood of Exodus 24 was the symbol of a self-maledictory oath, an oath taken by the people of Israel as members of the covenant, that in other words, the blood used at the inauguration of the Sinai covenant symbolized the curse that would befall any who broke it that implied in Moses' action was the commitment of the people to take on themselves the covenant curse should they fail. It was to implicitly say, as was done to these animals, so may it be done to us if we break this covenant. That's why the sacrifices had to be made in Exodus 24 after the people expressed their initial commitment to do what the Lord had said. It was the formalizing of the covenant. Psalm 50 verse 5 seems to refer to this very moment. The Lord says in Psalm 50 verse 5, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. In explaining the meaning, of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18. One scholar says, quote, the emphasis is on the fact that at its very inception, the first covenant already symbolized and predicted the necessity of the death of the covenant maker in the case of transgressions. The reader should have no doubt that the covenant was one that entailed the curse of death in fact, nearly everything about the first covenant was covered in blood, prefiguring the necessity of death for the forgiveness of transgressions of the covenant. And maybe Exodus itself doesn't come right out and say that explicitly, but it isn't hard to accept that in light of some other Old Testament passages. Listen just to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. The Lord says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, through Moses, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live. And the Lord your God will bless you. But if your heart turns away, notice the language of the heart there. If your heart turns away and you will not hear, 
but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life. From its inauguration, the curse for transgressing the Sinai covenant was ultimately death. That's what the pastor is bringing to our attention in verses 18 to 22. Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. At Sinai, Israel bound themselves to keep the Lord's covenant or else face death under his curse. Only you know what happens. Even a cursory reading of the Old Testament reveals that despite the Lord's patience and mercy, the covenant would be broken. They did not continue in my covenant, the pastor explained, quoting Jeremiah in Hebrews 8, verse 9. As one commentator summarizes, the old covenant may not have been able to cleanse the heart, but it did expose the true nature of sin as unbelief and disobedience springing from an evil heart. The need for a new covenant is clear, but do you see the problem? How can a new covenant for God's people be established unless the curses of the broken old covenant be somehow removed. The covenant curses had to be realized. That is the point of verses 16 and 17 of our text in Hebrews 9 as I read them. I probably cannot accomplish this in only the minute or two that I have to do it, but have a look there at verses 16 and 17 of Hebrews 9. The translation of almost every word in these two verses is intensely debated, but there's one key decision that makes or breaks the whole thing, in my view. The ESV that was read earlier and that you may be looking at goes with what is the more common translation, but I find it problematic. Instead of the word will, in verses 16 and 17, I think we should keep the word covenant. It is the same Greek word, and everywhere else in Hebrews that that word appears, it is translated as covenant. I think it should be in verses 16 and 17 as well. Because I do not think the pastor has shifted his meaning here. As I read it, verses 16 and 17 are about what must be done when a covenant is broken. Verse 16, for where a covenant, not a will, is involved, and it's a covenant that has been broken, as verse 15 already made clear, where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Do you see? I'm saying that that verse means the curse must be carried out. 
that the pastor understands what he will soon make explicit with his reference to Exodus 24, that when covenants of this sort are broken, they require the death of the offending party. As one scholar puts it, after a covenant has been broken, the only means of upholding it is to actualize the covenant curses, which ultimately, if not immediately, result in the death of the covenant maker turned covenant breaker. And so as I read it, verse 17 only strengthens the case. For a covenant, not a will, for a covenant takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. But who made the covenant in this context? The people of Israel. Did they keep it? No. What is then required? Death. In the words of one commentator, until the curse of a covenant falls on the covenant breakers, the validity of the covenant is in question. A covenant that is broken is proven authentic only by the deaths of those who broke it and thus invoked its curse. And now, now you can begin to see it. Can't you? The significance of verse 15c, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, but it's not their death as it should have been, as the curse of the covenant required. It's the death of another. It's the death of our priest. It's the one who one night said the words to his puzzled disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The curse must be carried out. The death of the one who made it must be established. Yes, thanks to God, it would be. But just as Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 will say that Christ was offered to bear the sins of many, so too can we say this with the pastor, Christ offered himself to bear the covenant curse of death. The death of the one who made it must be established. The pastor writes in verse 16, the verb translated there as established, in fact, usually has the sense of to bear. Maybe we ought to read the pastor to mean this. The death of the one who made it must be born. Yes, it must be. But as one scholar puts it, the pastor does not actually specify who must die. Only that the death pertaining to the covenant maker must be endured. Because of transgression, someone must bear the curse of death. He does not specify who. Or at least, he doesn't specify it in that verse. But we know who it is. It is Christ, our high priest, 
It was Jesus, the Son of God, who bore the curse of death that was rightly ours. He took it on. For as verse 22 of our passage concludes, such forgiveness cannot occur without the shedding of blood. And the only blood that can wash clean our stained consciences is the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. At Mount Sinai, the Israelites were shown a bloody preview of the death they would die if they spurned the Lord. For we, who know the Lord in new covenant faith, the seriousness of the matter hasn't changed. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, the pastor wrote back in chapter 2, verse 1. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? No, the seriousness of the matter hasn't changed, but thanks be to God, the provision has. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.